Welcome to your effing 40s. I'm Leon McLeod. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show. Welcome back, you guys. Show 84. Today, I have a very special guest with me. This is an exclusive Canadian interview, and I'm going to introduce you to him right now. This is Clifford Fabry. Did I say that right? Wow. Yeah, first time. That's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm oh, very, very impressed, Leanne. Yeah, thank you. Sometimes I speak properly. Can I tell your listeners a story later about you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, cool. Absolutely. So, Clifford, tell us before we start your story who you are and what industry you're in so the audience understands what's going on here. So, I'm in the music industry since 1997 to 2017. And in that 20 years, I think you've seen some of the stuff that we'll be talking about. It's been quite a ride. And you're retired now? You never retire. Um, I'm just, I've just, in 2016, just had a epiphany of I was going to do more for myself and just created a, my own little world as far as art projects and stuff, especially with COVID. Yeah, so I kept really busy with this one thing we'll probably talk about, which is kind of a character I created. So basically, I did over like, say, 20 teenage Canadian kids in Canada, and they all basically started in country karaoke, and all within maybe 250 kilometers of my home. And the the, the thought that, that always that I had was uh, the amount of work that these young ladies put into their country vocal and their karaoke machines and their Saturday recitals, and it, it's just amazing. And, and this area, especially in Eastern Canada has an influx of great support systems as far as country music. So I just tapped into that, but I thought, okay, so what if I tapped into these kids, but then gave them the opportunity to maybe see things a little broader, and would that music change? And um, obviously it did. Okay. And so let's start with why we're here today. <laughs> so you want to get into it, right? We're going to go right now because we got we only have so much time on the show. And just so okay. you guys... Just you so want you... Me to, you want me to name the title of my book? In a minute, yeah. I'm just going to let okay. our audience know right now, this is a three-part series. So you guys, there is more to the story that we can't even fit into the time we have. So you have to stay tuned because I'm going to literally, it's going to be one after another. So we really want you guys to pay attention to this one. If you miss it, listen to it over and over again. Download it. I don't care. Send it to your friends. But we're looking forward to uh, being the exclusive on this as a Canadian. And you can take it away. What's your book? It's called Letting Go is Complicated. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and let's explain or, that one right Or the, the, the secondary title that was almost was She Made It Complicated. Yeah, that's It was a good one, one of those two, and then we went with Letting Go, because that's the title of obviously the first record, and then Complicated, obviously the first hit. So it just made sense to go with Letting Go is Complicated, and then explain within that parameters what exactly went down in the 18 months. So basically I took a young Avril Lavigne from singing country karaoke right up into what you saw uh, 18 months later. So basically that transformation from a country karaoke singer to what you saw delivered and she just stormed onto the scene. And the thing about her that was so refreshing was attitude. And there was no preconceived stereotypes about her. She made one fatal mistake. And it's the mistake that why we're talking today. And, and she claimed that she wrote her songs. And unfortunately, she didn't. And I was there, so I know. 
and there was a lot of smoke over the 20 years and there's been so much talk about plagiarism and I, I look I was busy I had a career I was in LA and New York and but you know I, I can read and I, I can see the bullying and the first songwriters now you have to understand we were two years in and we didn't have a hit and when we met the Matrix in, in LA and the day that they wrote Complicated was one of the happiest days of our lives now now picture this a year later when that song comes out and she doesn't have a relationship with the Matrix anymore because she's claiming that she wrote the song. And the Matrix were the only writers that came out against her in Rolling Stone in 2002. And, and that's when this whole thing started. Like They were in a big fight about who wrote the record. And then the Matrix didn't work with her anymore after that. And I had another teenager, funny enough. I also had Breakaway, which nobody knows about. I had Breakaway for four years. So before Kelly Clarkson had a hit with it, I got Avril Lavigne 10% because I was there when the song was written. And uh, so basically I took that song Breakaway when I left Avril and took another country kid 30 kilometers from Napanee and basically put her through the exact same experience that Avril went through. Breakaway was the first single and then we went on our rock mission and I ended up working with anybody that I wanted to. And the person that I picked was the person that did Gwen Stefani and uh, Tragic Kingdom. So Matthew Wilder and myself created this record for Samantha Moore that, well, I mean, Tom Panunzio, who is an industry legend, and he was our uh, A&R person at Geffen on this project. And, you know, I was never into releasing music since what happened with Avril in 2002 when Let Go was released. I refused to release any more music, but I, I but didn't mean I wasn't going to make it. So I've made over 200 songs in L.A., New York, Nashville with the best writer producers in the world. And I have those songs now available after the book comes out, I'll start releasing my music once I get the notoriety from, you know, my first record, which was Let Go. Yeah. Wow. Crazy, right? Okay, so now that the audience all sitting here with their mouths open, <laughs> and I'm I, like, I'm legitly... I, this when guy's I, full of shit. Yeah. No, I, and you know what? It's so, so I have a very good friend that gave me this interview on a platter, and thank God that you agreed to talk to us about this. I'm, I'm, well, can I go in there a second on that one? Yeah. So that person you're talking about, now, if you can believe that, I started in the music industry with that person. We we ran a club. He was one of the owners of a nightclub, and I believe that's how you met him. And uh, him and I just did some amazing things together to bring this club in Ottawa to, you know, one of the, obviously the top club in Ottawa, but it took us, we had a five-year journey together. But that guy is, uh, as you know, is uh, just a wonderful human being and just smart and ambitious and just, you know, I love him. So for me doing this, I'm only doing one interview and this is it. So I look at this as being, that's where I started in the Penguin store with this guy. And then you started with him yep. in kind of a similar way. Yeah, I was which loaded, I, was I remember. Yeah, <laughs> okay, like okay you can tell the audience what Doug told you. Well, it, it, that's what, you know, I remember Doug asked, like, I, immediately when I reconnected with Doug after like 30 years, he tells me about your podcast because he was reading about some of the stuff that I was writing. And... I, of course, said, no, I'm not, I don't do press and all that kind of stuff. No. And then, what, a month later, as you know, as you can, I've been sort of filling you in on stuff and sending you stuff, but, you know, things have really picked up. So I'm thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to do this one time, then I'm going to do it with someone that not only promotes what live music like you do, you have your own company, I understand. Is that, is that right? It started off as a podcast. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. now it's a it's a stage show and I showcase original talent from all over Calgary and local area, Alberta, NBC. And nice. uh, yeah, and I've had actually people out of Toronto like Noise 
and stuff like that on the show. And they've been in Calgary at Doug's venue when he had it. And then as I had a year on stage with the Blind Beggar at the time, I had an artist come to me and said, you know, you really seem to know what you're doing here. So even though I don't think he really knew me, but uh, <laughs> do we ever know what we're doing? You make it. Yeah, right? yeah, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, 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 yeah right. exactly. And uh, he's like, I'd really like to see you be an agent or a manager. And I'm like, I don't oh, know. You, yeah, that's that's right up. Because let me just interject there, because how you met Doug, the person that we're talking about, you were in there one night and you basically looked at his stage and said, I want to do a podcast from that stage. Yeah. And he looked at you like you were nuts. Yeah. Yeah, and I love that. Nuts. Yeah, everything. I love nuts. that. But yeah. you know what? I'm telling you right now, he loves that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. He loves my witty stuff, right? I always well, have no, these he ideas. Did, he, I know him. And he, he, even though it didn't click right away and he said what he said because he's a smart ass, but deep down he thought, oh, maybe this girl's got something. And to me, that is everything. Because you doing that tells me that I fully understand that. And that's origin. And that's something that to me is so important. Because basically, when you've had something stolen from you, when you've had your art stolen, and then for 20 years, you watch that art become like some of the most popular stuff in the world, and you know that you're 90% you know, responsible for that. And basically, I hired her as a, as a country vocal for my Teen Jagged Pill project, because I was from Ottawa, and I was, I was recreating uh, Jagged Little Pill. I mean, that, Atlanta's hit in 1995. That's all I thought about was, oh my God, I got to find a little Alanis, a little Tina Alanis. And then to take it a step further, I had the producers. I mean, Glenn Ballard is the guy that did Jagged Little Pill. And then I had his partner. They did a record together in 1989 called Black and White. And uh, so here's Cliff Magnus and Glenn Ballard. And, and who do I meet in LA when I'm, when I'm stuck with my, you know, my... The, the label I had already delivered Breakaway, they had complicated. So that record was going very mild. You know, it was going towards more of a, a medium pop flair with a country tinge with Breakaway in there. And then when Unwanted, if you listen to Let Go, if you have fans that have listened to Let Go, song six, you'll listen to the grinding guitars. That song is so different. The two Cliff Magnus tracks on that record just stand out. And when you listen to them, close your eyes and you'll sort of hear Jagged Little Pill. And then the beautiful part about that, so Avril's been saying she's written, she wrote Breakaway for 20 years now. And I find it just unbelievable because we were on a plane when Bridget wrote the lyrics and it took Bridget three days, okay? And over 25 versions to get that lyric. So think about that. Three days and 25 versions to get Breakaway. And then somebody comes in and just says, oh yeah, I wrote that. And to me, I, I look, I just, I was dumbfounded. Like, I cannot believe that we're even having this conversation, but it was something that I knew. Like, what people are probably not understanding is this all happened. You have to understand in the music industry, the music is made well before it comes out. So Let Go was basically made, we got most of the songs in May, June of 2001, and then it came out in May 2002. And I wasn't there after that, because after I came back with Unwanted, which was that Atlantis rock song, which knocked breakaway off of let go and why I had breakaway with me for my next artist. And then I met Jimmy Iveen of all people. And that's, I had a, I think we had five labels bidding on Samantha's version of breakaway. So this would have been two years before Kelly Clarkson released it. And uh, I, I basically, we went into a meeting with Jimmy Iveen and I have known about him. And this is a guy that his first signing, first of all, 
he was the producer for um, some of the most iconic records of my time. 1976, Born to Run, Bruce Springsteen, Jimmy Iovine. Damnator Torpedoes, Tom Petty, Jimmy Iovine. And his sidekick was Tom Penunzio. So when I had the opportunity with Samantha, I told one person the story that I'm telling you right now before I wrote everything down. But I told Jimmy Iovine exactly what happened. And within 45 minutes of, uh, through that entirety of that meeting, I whispered in his ear at the end of the meeting, I want a million USD. Or I said 1.25 million because I wanted 0.25 million more than Avril. So, yeah, he said yes. So basically within a month, we were living in L.A. and I had carte blanche on every single writing team, producing team, production team in L.A. To prove to you what I'm talking about, the first people we worked with was a, a gentleman named John Shanks. So John Shanks, this is how crazy this business is, but also how it's so small. So John Shanks is someone that I had worked with Samantha. They came up with some great stuff early on. And then what ended up happening four years later was John Shanks ended up being the producer of Breakaway for Kelly Clarkson. And he won producer of the year at the Grammys for Breakaway. So that song, Breakaway, the song that I found, that was like my first hit that I found, Think about it. Avril Lavigne got 10% ownership, which has made her a multi, 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 multi millionaire just on that one song. And she's able to say she wrote it because her name's in the credits, even though it's only 10%. And then you look at Samantha Moore, $1.25 million record deal. Then you look at Kelly Clarkson, a number one hit. That song serviced three teenage girls and made them all rich. So that's the power of publishing. And that's what I knew from early on. And that's maybe, I guess, the magic bullet that I have, that I bring is I've always been a deep believer in publishing and in the Avril case or any kid that I take out of school. The record labels gouged the artists like up to ridiculous amounts off their records at that time. Being new to the industry, you got to remember, oh my God, Lane, I'm going to tell you this. So I didn't even know how many strings on a guitar. Okay. I'm a jock. I, I came from a, a pretty successful sports background. So what I had was a competitiveness and a creativity and it just sort of fit with the music that I loved, which was all the stuff that Iveen signed, like Iveen signed Dr. J and uh, Eminem. So I got to hear early Eminem, like when that thing was just coming out and then, you know, Snoop Dogg and Nine Inch Nails and, and Marilyn Manson. I mean, Jimmy turned convicts into corporations. So much so that you see Snoop Dogg on TV with Martha Stewart. And Jimmy Ivy and his genius, you know, aside from producing Springsteen, Petty, and all these other luminaries, and aside from having one of the most successful record labels ever with the coolest bands ever, and then he starts Beats in 2007. And within seven years, sells it for $3.2 billion. Uh, Dr. Dre walked in and said, hey, let's, let's, uh, I've been asked to do a, a speaker deal. And Jimmy says, Am I allowed to swear? Yep. It's the FM 40s. Said, Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy said, fuck sneakers. We're doing speakers. Yeah. And why he said speakers was because he had a relationship, a really good relationship with Steve Jobs. And he loved Apple. And he thought the one thing that Apple lacked was headphones. And so that's why um, he created Beats. But then take it seven years later when Beats was bought by Apple for $3.2 billion. Apple wasn't buying the headphones. Like That was a throw-in. What Apple was buying was the... Uh, what Beats had done was set up like uh, an Apple Music. Well, that's what it was. I mean, they basically set up a music library and, and sold it to Apple along and the Beats were just in on it. So, And that deal came so close to going away. And if you watch the HBO special on it, 
it's just the most amazing. You have everybody from Bono to Springsteen to Gaga to Gwen Stefani to, you know, Eminem, just name an artist. And, and that's who's talking about Jimmy in this, in this six part. I think it's a six hour documentary straight out of Compton. That was the movie they were filming. And, and obviously Dr. Dre was in that. And then the defiant one on HBO, the defiant one. The defiant and one. Is that what it's called? Defiant, defiant okay. as in defiant, the okay. defiant ones. And oh, that's an HBO isn't that special. on the Disney? Isn't on the Disney channel? It might be on Disney now. It's huge. It's huge. You won all okay, kinds of awards. I was just awards. looking I mean, at that. I was like, I'm, should I watch that? I was, yeah, okay, now I'm going to go no, watch you that. you want to watch that. The first 20 minutes is just superstar artists talking about Jimmy Iovine's genius. Yeah, it is cool because no one knew who he was, right? When I, when, and this is what's so cool about this guy. Like, he'd done all these things, but then I'm standing in a club in LA and there he is at the back of the room. You know, and he's and he's running. You know, he's he's basically in charge of A and M Records, Geffen Records, and Interscope Records. And like, I mean, there's nothing that that guy didn't do that you know didn't turn into gold. But you know, in being around him and sort of seeing seeing the look, it is a vicious environment. Okay, and it is competitive. Like when I have an artist like Samantha Moore as an example, even though it's a 1.25 million deal. Okay, I've got in 12 months in a year, I, and you've got. Four, so say broken off in four terms, four quarters. So you're basically your new artist with her new music is competing against marketing dollars for Gaga, marketing dollars for Blink 182 at the time, marketing dollars for every single artist on Geffen, Counting Crows. To try to get a release is is virtually, you know, you know, even though you're signed, you have the deal. It is a fight to get your music heard within the label and then to get it played. And so not having to worry about that because my only goal was to do again and again and again with what I did with Avril, just to make sure that I protected what I did with her. So I did it 20 times. (laughs) And I think you've seen the results. And I think if your folks go to my, my only site, I have the LinkedIn site, but it's got all the stories and pictures and a lot of pictures and stuff. And it's just luck. I joked with you the other day about we were talking about Tom Penenzio and and like I why I don't say I'm in the music industry. It's very weird for me to say that I'm in the music business because as I said to you, I didn't even know how many guitars on a string. But do I have ears? Yeah. Do I know marketing? Yeah. Do I know a great song? Yeah. But Tom Penenzio has been in there. I mean, he started in a studio with John Lennon, and you know, not that he he did talk about it, but I mean, it's not something for me to talk about for him, but he was in the studio, the same studio that John was in the night that he died. And there was a brief little between the two studios. Cause Tom was working with a fellow that was obviously a big John. And he freaked out because John's studio had called down for Tom to come up. And Tom said something like, Oh, I'll see him tomorrow. <laughs> Ay, yeah, yeah. But, um, Tomorrow never came. So that was 1980, December 9th, December 9th, 1980. I still remember that date. But so you, you go through your life and I was just a kid then. So I was 20 and Tom would have been probably 32 working with Leonard at that time. But then, you know, go ahead 30 years. And here I am. Tom was the first hired at the new Geffen. Samantha Moore was a big signing and she was really the first signing for Jimmy that just took over Geffen. They were rebooting it. And Tom being his best friend of many years and his engineer, that was Tom's first label job. And basically what Tom did was, I mean, him and I were inseparable. 
we made Samantha's record together. And we had over, I think, over 120 songs. We basically made 10 records in a year and a half. Yeah, and I have every one of those songs still. And I think you've heard a few of them, and people that have heard them, obviously, that would have been, to me, it would have been Avril's second record. When you hear Deadly and Pain Can Call Me a Kid, you got to remember, we had, so Matthew Wilder producing this, who did, like I said, Gwen Stefani and the biggest record that, or Tragic Kingdom for No Doubt. But his imagination and, and the music that was created by this guy, and then and then you add in, he brings in Paul McCartney's drummer. So there's Abe drumming on a 14-year-old Canadian team's record. That's he, crazy. He's on, Deadly and Pink. I know. <laughs> he's on Deadly and Pink and Call Me a Kid. And these songs, I'm telling you, like, I know what they are. I had Breakaway for four years. I know what a hit is. I've got seven Matrix songs, and these are songs that they wrote right after Complicated, Skater Boy, and I'm with you. And I've got a great Skater Boy story. <laughs> You'll love this, Leanne. So I remember, I think it was 2003, and one of the things uh, Avril was being questioned about her writing because the Matrix had said that they had wrote the record and there was a big feud. And you got to remember, Avril's publishing company and record company pay the Matrix. So they got to be very careful. And when I met them, they were living in a bungalow in Hollywood. And then, you know, the next time I met them, they were living in Beverly Hills. So that's what one successful record does. Yeah. So basically complicated skater boy and I'm with you put them in Beverly Hills. Now, just complicated alone put him in Beverly Hills. But Skater Boy's a great story because Avril, one of the quotes that came out of her, this is like, so basically you'll, you'll, you'll sort of start to see the theme. My theme is she wrote nothing. So all I'm doing is I'm telling my story because it, it's I got her the publishing. I'm the one that was responsible for her name being on that record for writing nothing. And then her doing a year later doing what she did. I was handcuffed. I mean, she was the biggest star in the world. And, and you know, like I said, I was doing Samantha Moore. I'm with Jimmy Iovine. What the fuck do I care about Avril Lavigne? Like I was I was so far beyond her. And then working with Matthew Wilder and, and John Shanks, and I'm working with every, oh, Tim, Tim James and Antonina Armato, who did Rock Mafia. So they're responsible for both Miley Cyrus. And uh, I'm going to forget her name, but I always forget her name. But Miley and the one that goes with her, but they were both kids and both big Samantha Moore fans when I was hanging around that studio. And it's uh, Selena Gomez. So Selena and Miley. And people don't know this about Miley. And again, this is what I read and, and from what I heard from, you know, Tim and Antonina and that. But this is a girl that got rejected like five, six times. Okay. Like this TV. Like, I mean, this girl tried and tried and tried. She was just relentless. And Lady Gaga, the same way, you know, rejected three times. Or, I'm sorry, dropped two times. Katy Perry dropped two times. Now, I know what that means because I had an artist, you know, that when Samantha, when we finally got off of Geffen because we weren't going to release, and I know what an artist goes through. Like, you know, not releasing is a big deal, especially when people are expecting stuff and all that other kind of stuff. So for Gaga and Katy Perry to go through it twice, and then, you know, to still come out the third time and, and really become who they became the third time. And there's a reason for that in my mind. And, and this is, again, stuff that nobody knows. And it's a trade secret, but he's the most successful human on the planet. So when I say Jimmy Iovine, Jimmy Iovine doesn't sign artists. Jimmy Iovine signs producers. And with those producers, like in Hollywood, when you're making a movie, you know it's a Spielberg movie. You know it's a Scorsese movie. Those Hollywood directors are it. And the actors are hired and they listen to everything that director says. And, and that's the relationship. And when the movie comes out, 
that's who gets the billing is the is the director in the music business it's no different with the producer i can say to people shania twain and everybody goes ah and immediately i say mutt lang her husband one of the greatest producers you know that we've had ever and then when i say uh when i say celine dion i say renee angelé you know what he did with american Sony, you know brilliant you know uh sarah mclaughlin terry mcbride that's why I brought, you know, my first artist, Jennifer McLaren, to network. I was a guest of Terry's at um, Lilith Fair. I got to see him walking around and watch what this guy had built. And I thought, oh, my God, this is this is what I want to do. So I put my first artist with network three years before Avril. Of course, network ended up managing Avril um, after I left. So it's all, that's what I'm saying, this story is, Oh my God! Like it, as you can tell, because you know more than your listeners, but it all ties in. Like it's it's amazing the way it all just kind of fits together. And as I'm telling you these stories all over the place, like it it it's just a fascinating life. And I, I think through this experience that I'm sharing now, I think people are going to understand a lot more about the music industry and what it really means to make it. Your Epping Forties is sponsored by John William Wade. Claudia Santiago Productions, Corner Salon, Tracks VR, Soulmate Shoes Inc., Brickwell Tap House, Border Crossing Pub, and Effing 40s Live Entertainment. Because of what I do for a living and what this show yeah. really truly is about. So now with the young bands, they can hear this and go, okay. Because I, I really feel like in, in Calgary, especially when we're coming back out of this, like there's some very talented human beings everywhere in Canada, obviously. There's talented human beings everywhere that yeah. I've been in the world. And yeah. let me quickly tell you about your bands. Quickly, a quick little story. So yeah. I was at the Penguin Club, right? And I had bands traveling from Newfoundland to Vancouver. Okay? Think about that. Playing in front of 10, 20 people a night. Nobody knew who the fuck they were. No one cared. Yeah. And then when I got my first band, after seeing that, where did I go? I drove, what, five hours to get to Boston, six hours. And then I went from Boston to Philadelphia. Boston to Philadelphia, six hours, six and a half hours. That's bigger than the population of Canada. So I'm literally with the band for a year, September Child, making all these contacts in the States within a six-hour drive with a population bigger than Canada. And so whenever I hear a Canadian bands on a tour in Canada, I think they're idiots. <laughs> they should. Well, see, and a lot of the a lot of the guys that we have, they go to the U.S. Yeah. Like they go to Nashville, they go to the U.S. Of right? Of course. Like it's the it's numbers. It's it's that's where the population is, and and it's like it's no different than the DIY thing, the do it yourselves. I, I mean, I love the world today. You've got all these, you know, live in your camper, go to, uh, you know, live, live off a raft. I don't know, like whatever you want to do. Live off a raft. <laughs> well, you know, you can, you literally today can create your own world and all you need is to find enough numbers. <laughs> and, and there's enough numbers of pockets of people around the world that you can get enough to have a life. But it takes discipline. It takes, you know, it takes, it, it, you know, you, you want to be free. And, and, uh, and, and I just think it's, I think the music industry is so much better today than it was when I got into it. You know where women were when I came into the music industry? They were in strip clubs. Oh, okay. that's where, that's yeah. where all the bands were. That's where the executives were. That's where the credit cards were. So these women were forced to go into strip clubs to, to, to compete with their male counterparts. And the males loved it. You know, they're around, you know, it, it was just, to me, it was just, Oh my God, I'm going to do so well. 
<laughs> I, I just, I, I just, when I saw the shape of the things that I was seeing, and especially then, because you, you have to remember when I was, so right at that cusp of when Avril, between Avril and Samantha, those million dollar deals was Napster. And Napster, of course, being illegal downloading. I remember so Napster. The, <laughs> yeah. So what did the record labels do? The record labels, I don't, you know, the record labels started suing their customers. I mean, they were just clueless to what was coming. But what I saw was, ah, you know, no more genres. I, I hate genres. I think people are smart enough to listen to whatever music they want and make their determination by whether it's good. And this way you're turned on to new stuff all the time. So when I got these young country kids, I didn't force them to leave country. But when they started working with these producers that worked with these rock bands or these bands, these, these female artists that they love, what do you think their influence is going to be? Like they completely, you know, modernized their sound. Now, maybe taking that. And what I keep saying is Avril Lavigne is a star. And she has an amazing voice. And that's the thing that maybe is not understood about this girl. Like, I mean, this girl can sing. And that was part of the allure. But when you take the intellect, like singing is one thing. But when you take the intellect of songwriting and you start, you know, taking other people's words and you take a song like Breakaway and Complicated, Breakaway and Complicated were written on back-to-back days. Two huge hits. For Avril Lavigne. So if Avril Lavigne did write those songs, she literally wrote them in six hours, both of them. So I have a question for you about that. Has she written anything? That was me. Okay. Now, why? Because I met her at a karaoke bar and, and that she didn't even know what we were crossing the George Washington Bridge in New York the first time and she didn't know who George Washington was. And that's no slight on first president of the United States, but no slight on Avril, but it was like, we're talking very small town with limited travel. So, but what she had and what I obviously brought out in her was confidence. Like she was a beaten kid when I met her, like her mother had said some nasty things and she got kicked out of school for some ridiculous stuff, like, you know, smoking and the, I don't know, something, something silly that she got suspended and then she got fired from her Kentucky fried chicken job, just <laughs> shit like that. And then I, the first Normal thing I said stuff. to Avril, yeah, but Leanne, you'll love this. The first thing I say to my kids, and it's not a democracy, it's a dictatorship because, you know, all the pressure's on me. It's my money, my time. And I've got to make this happen. Or as I said to her, she's going back to Kentucky Fried Chicken. Because what I said to her the first time I met her was, you know, I don't give a fuck. Okay? You fuck up. First conversation with her. And so came out of that respect. You know, she just had total respect. She was introducing me to all her friends. I was the new cool guy. And then what did the new cool guy do? The new cool guy uh, invited her to come to Toronto and hang around the studio and, you know, hanging around a band, Bomb 32, who was a rap metal band, who was just fantastic. So this girl got a musical education from the time she was 16. And that's where the rock stuff started to come. And um, writing is a, writing is no different than anything else. You have to work at it. You become better at it. So obviously my thinking was getting, like, I, I as I said, you're up the songs, Breakaway and Complicated Skater Boy, and I'm with you. And two different sets of production teams wrote those four songs. But as I said to Sandy, like, she has to be in the room. 
they have to know her. Like the policy usually is like a Clive Davis policy is the best song wins. Wherever it comes from, I don't care. No, no, no. They have to be in the room. They have to get a feel for who that kid is. And that's why The Matrix wrote Complicated. I think I touched on that to you. And it's, I'm not saying that I did anything other than, but I remember it as clear as day because I was in a war with the label. I had Unwanted, the Alanis Morissette song, and I also had Breakaway. And the label was saying, we're not putting that rock song, Unwanted, on the record. Well, it is on the record. But anyways, at the time, it wasn't going on the record. And that was my major friction with them. But the reality of everything was, Avril fit that style like a glove. Now, did I? Now I had been gone from her for eight months when the record was released. Did I think she was going to come out and say she wrote these songs? I mean, I, you, you, I was as dumbfounded as the Matrix and everybody. I was just like, oh my god, I can't believe she just said that. But the reality of it is, no one else knew. Her new management people didn't know. The people in Canada didn't know. I didn't even exist anymore. So basically, she had carte blanche to basically say what she wanted and not ever thinking that this would happen 20 years later, that I would be, you know, writing everything down and having, as you've seen, an unbelievable amount of work done on making, because I had to make sure that everybody had no doubt that this was true. And, and I mean, I kind of overdid it. And, um, but that's, you know, that look, my work, and especially with in Canada, like I, I often joke, like if I had to get, earn a living in Canada, I'd be homeless. I just don't fit the, uh, we have a very laid back kind of like, you know, okay, go sit down in the corner there and just relax. You know, like when I say something, I mean it. And some of the stuff I say is so outlandish that people think I'm absolutely nuts. Like I said to, I said to Judy Levine within a week of meeting her, your, your daughter's going to be the biggest star in the world within two years. And she looked at me like, who the hell is this guy? Like, shut up. And you know what? It happened. I said it to Samantha Moore's mother. I said it to Jessica Tyler's mother. Like, I mean, all of these kids, like when, when I get involved with them and I hear that voice and then I start putting songs to the voice, like I'm, I'm creating a whole world. Like it's my fantasy world. So when I did it one time, two times, three times, and then after three times, I'm like, okay, I, I mean, this is ridiculous. I'm literally 2007 in Interscope with my TV girl after, after having success with Avril and Samantha, I'm still with Samantha, but Jimmy was looking for a TV girl because everything was about TV, MTV. So I had this kid in Toronto and I, I brought her to LA and there, and there's Jimmy showing off to the kid. Snoop's on the phone. Dre drops by. Gaga came in. It's unbelievable. And there's this 14 year old from Toronto, but just right in there. And, and what does Jimmy do? Gives her a pair of Beats headphones that aren't even for sale yet. This girl goes home to Toronto with a pair of prototypes. That's respect. <laughs> like that, that's from Jimmy knowing what I did with Avril, Jimmy knowing what I did with Samantha. I even sued Jimmy while I was there with Samantha. And who did I sue Jimmy with? I used his lawyer from Interscope 10 years ago. Like, and that's what I was saying to you about getting your artist in a position to release. You have to, you know, you have to use every, so who did I use to sue him? I, I knew that this guy knew him. So the lawyer called him on a Friday night and, and Jimmy answers the phone, like who's suing me now? You know, and, and that, but you know, that's what I got back from the lawyer on Monday. And that's exactly what I wanted to get back. But you're constantly using leverage. And what I've always said about the Canadian music industry is they milked Avril Lavigne's success. 
And that's one thing that I'm going to make sure. Like, I want a Ben Johnson-type commission. A lot of your listeners won't even know what that is. But when the steroid scandal went down with Ben Johnson, they had a huge commission. And they went through all of it to find out, you know, everything that they could about steroids and steroids use and why this happened. Well, the music industry from 2001 to 2008 is full of shit. And their biggest star that made that industry a whole lot of money and gave them a whole lot of recognition and a whole lot of success is a fraud. Because one thing you can't do, and I said this to you, you can murder someone in the music industry. You can beat the shit out of someone in the music industry. And you can still have a career. But the one thing you cannot do, you cannot lip sync. Yeah, like Millie Vanilli, right? And I think saying you wrote something, you did it, it's called plagiarism. And that is, in the music industry, that is the death now. Now, she's won, I believe, seven ASCAP awards. ASCAP is a writing association that she belonged to that have paid her millions of dollars over 15 years. And she was on Howard Stern, and she didn't know who ASCAP was. The video's on yours. I think I've sent you the video. I mean, all I did was... I took video of Terry McBride. I took video of Avril. I just, I took their articles. I just took their story on, on, on fiction, on how they had their success and made their success. And unfortunately, it's all a lie. And, and that's unfortunate. And I mean, it's unfortunate for a country because the embarrassment that's going to come from this is going to make the Milli Vanilli thing look like a picnic. That was the scandal from my day, the big scandal of they didn't sing their songs, but they had a hit record and they were just, uh, you know, and then I think I told them, I'm kind of going all over the place, but the great thing about lip syncing, because I'm thinking about now, of course, it goes to Ashley Simpson with the Saturday Night Live fiasco and how involved we were with that. I mean, Joe Simpson was to manage Geffen Records, Jordan Schur, who was a uh, did Limp Biscuit out of Florida, and then Jimmy made him president of Geffen for the new for the new Geffen. So he had success with uh, Ashley Simpson. Or sorry, Jessica Simpson had a big MTV TV show, which was huge. And now Ashley was coming along, so Ashley signed at Geffen. So Samantha was like the golden girl, the voice, the star, and then Ashley was like hired because she had an MTV show. So basically, they copied everything that that we did with Samantha Tom Penanzio with her in Anchor. So they basically got all those songs. John, Sh- she worked with all the same people Samantha worked with. Had a beautiful record, put it out, and then started rushing. And I'm I'm watching all of this, and I'm watching Joe Simpson, and I've got Jordan Sure, you know, yelling at me like, you know, you've got to, you're, you're the production company, you're going to make millions, you know, you've got to let them manage, you've got to let them manage Samantha Moore. And I'm like, fuck that. I I did not like Joe Simpson. I do not like any of that shit. And, and I just thought, I mean, if that's who he sees at Savannah Moore's manager, we got a real issue here. But so we're in a meeting now. So we're in this meeting with Jordan Schur, Joe Simpson, Ashley Simpson, myself, Samantha, her mother, Ken Krongard, a few other people. And so it comes around and, and they, they say, oh, I had Matthew Wilder with me, of course, did uh, Tragic Kingdom. So we're, we're all sitting in there and, 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 and this is the final pitch, the last meeting of five. And they, and they say to us, and they go to me, they go, we have an MTV show greenlit. It's a silhouette. Okay, it's the four Simpsons, mom, dad, Ashley, Jessica, and a silhouette. And as the season progresses, the silhouette's going to fill in. And Samantha Moore is going to appear, and she's going to be the missing Simpson daughter, the country missing Simpson singer. And that's going to be the show. She's going to be the missing Simpson daughter. Now, that's a greenlit MTV show, which basically means millions, especially with the music we had and the people behind it. But I'm thinking, 
I don't want Samantha Moore anywhere near this. I think this is just a disaster. So I said to Joe Simpson in that meeting, I said, okay, Joe, let's say you're managing Samantha. So now you've got Ashley or Jessica, Ashley and Samantha. They're all kind of in the same genre. They all, they're all going to mix and match. So you get an opportunity. Where does Samantha fit in that? Is she one, two or three priority? The meeting was over. <laughs> I mean, the guy's got two daughters and Samantha. Like, who's going to be a priority? You're going to tell me that my girl who's just got these deals and, and 140 songs and all this recognition, and now you're telling me that I'm going to put her with a manager, that she's going to be third on his list before his daughters, and he's going to be getting more plum stuff because Samantha Moore's there, and then I don't know if it's going to his daughters or her. Like, not in a million years. So I excused myself when they pitched that TV thing, and Matthew Wilder and I stepped out in the hallway, and we were both bent over laughing. And I looked at Matthew, and I said, the only fucking family Samantha Moore's joining is Bart and Lisa Simpson. <laughs> Matthew thought it was funny. I don't know if your audience will think it's funny, but that's the music business. I mean, it's just, you know, you're constantly looking for attention, but you're, you know, you can't believe that you're there. And it's just all surreal. The whole thing for a guy that at 40 years old didn't have one music business contact and then within three years had three major signings and the biggest star in the world, it was a lot. And then to have it all literally and I can't stress this enough. When she did what she did, so let me tell you what she did. Now, just imagine this. So we get, we go to LA for the first time. Now we'd been nine months in, and I was, I think, 110,000 US into the budget without one song. We had about ten songs, but none of them were going to make the record. So I call a friend in publishing and I say, "Look, man, I uh, we got to get out of here." going through a flux because L.A. Reed just took over for Clive Davis, so there's that. There's just a mess. There's no way in our person, our A&R &R guy got fired after signing out. So it was just like I was basically A&R managing. I was doing everything, but the songs weren't there. So he said, well, you keep talking about this Alanis thing. There's there's Cliff Magnus in L.A. and he's you know he he did a record with uh, with Glenn Ballard and and I, knowing that I wasn't going to get Glenn Ballard. I mean he just did Alanis. There's no fucking way he's going to do you know something like this. I mean he was he was too far beyond. But to get a guy that he did a record with and a guy that he was partners with, I couldn't be happier. And then when we got the song, it was great. So that trip, we got the song that changed the record. We got. Three hits, Breakaway, Complicated Skater Boy, Oh, I'm With You. Oh, so we had all of those songs. So now we come back to New York. We pack up and we go back to Canada. I drop her off in Napanee. And I was planning my first vacation, I think, in three years. So I went to Virginia with my family. Now, in that two-week period that I was gone, after coming home with those hits, when I get back from Virginia, there's a gentleman standing at my door with two paragraphs stating, I was an infant when I signed the deal. This deal is null and void. Now, what major record labels do, because I learned this after with Samantha Moore, is if a 16-year-old like Samantha Moore signs a $1.25 million contract, the major label automatically goes to the courts and gets that contract termed adult, basically meaning that the infant is not an adult and a percentage of that money needs to go in the bank. Now, I didn't know that with Avril because I, I don't even sign deals with my kids until after I get them these deals. So Avril, Samantha, Jessica, they all signed with me after I got their million-dollar deal. So this is why it's very personal with Avril. But to get something like that, the first thing I thought was, what a fucking idiot. Like, I cannot believe 
she's doing this. Like, just clueless. Her, Harry McBride, BMG Music, L.A. Reid, anybody that's associated with Let Go, the biggest selling record in Canada in the 21st century, 30 million sold worldwide. They don't even know how I made it. They have no clue. You've seen the blueprint. You've seen the quotes from the producers, the writers, the Matrix and uh, Cliff Magnus and everything. Well, we're going to connect a lot of the literature. Like your site is going to be connected to the yeah. show as well. Well, I, I so. hope people go take a look because then they'll un- I, I don't want them to think I'm an asshole just talking out of my head. I mean, this stuff is stuff that I had to learn. I mean, uh, you know, it's a good learning years. lesson, though. Not for you. I'm sorry that it happened to you, but I'm I'm saying for the rest of the industry. Oh, no, dude, 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 dude. It's the greatest thing that ever happened. I couldn't get away from her fast enough. Like, this is yeah. what people don't understand. Like, but the thing about Tom Penenzio, I joked with you the other day, was for Gump, like with the John Lennon thing and, and working with Springsteen and Petty and on these iconic records. I mean, Tom Petty to me is Forrest Gump. He's just this history of rock and roll. Your your mind, your viewers' minds, they'll just explode. And we've already talked about this. Hopefully, you know, as we as we grow and, and this story becomes more mainstream, we'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get these people onto the podcast and they can tell you about all the great records they made. And I would love that. And we're also going to do, so like I said, everybody stay tuned. This is the first of a three part series. We're going to break it down. We have another show coming out in about three or four weeks with Cliff. And I'm allowed to call you Cliff or Clifford. Do I have to call you Clifford? I'm going with Clifford Fabry, two B's. Cause okay. uh, when my grandparents immigrated, they took a B out. And oh, okay. me off, so now I'm back to two B's. <laughs> you want your B back. <laughs> I want my B back, Banna DeLuca. I'm, uh, I'm, and listen to this, not only ADHD, but also Sicilian, half Sicilian and half Banna DeLuca, which is Tuscany. So I'm, nice. I'm full, I'm full blooded Italian, but, um, born in Canada. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. And I, thank you for like giving us your time. And I look forward oh, to it. Oh, dude, shut I, up. I mean, I, I, I love this shit. Time. Like I, the thing I love is, first of all, I love kids and yeah. I love uh, freaking kids out with actually being able to live their dreams. And when somebody tells me I can't do something, I literally want to punch him in the head. And in this country, unfortunately, this country, and that's why a lot of our artists, uh, the big ones, Drake, Bieber, they, they all sign in America. Yeah, they sign in America. They're actors because there's no reason why we can't be doing it from here. And that's what I definitely plan on doing in the next few years. And I'm excited to see this growth. Yeah. yeah. So, so you're, you're gonna, never retiring. Dude, <laughs> I'm going to tell you something right now. You may be losing Avril, but you're getting me. And, and once Oops. people start to see the breadth of my work, I'm not being an asshole. I mean, yeah. I want to be able to, I don't want to be pissed off at Canada anymore. Yeah. Like it's been too long. And, and I'm basically been at war with, I mean, I have just shamed the Junos, the CBC. They're all mortified. They cannot believe this is true. They just cannot believe this is true. Like this is devastating to them because they've got ethics and, I mean, to have a plagiarist bully as, as one of their, and she won, what did she win this year? She won um, fan favorite at the Junos. I mean, you can't make this shit up. So we're saving this for our next show. Some more stories. <laughs> well, ever. Best, and that's why I'm doing this is because entrepreneurs like you motivate me. Thank you. Stories like yours from where you started to where hopefully this is going to go. Um, I think you're a natural at this. Thank you. I, yeah. I I enjoy it. I do. I uh, I have a lot of fun with it. There's a lot of work at it. I don't think people realize how hard it is. Oh, dude, it, it's it's like I said, DIY. Is that how you said do, do it yourself? But yeah, like it's do it yourself is is basically you're doing everything. 
so there's no there's no i mean that's why and oh you'll God, find we'll that even this. depending on the people that you thought were the closest to you will leave oh. like you, you, the ones that you think that got you or or are there for support always be there for yourself and i i know that sounds really shitty but when you're an entrepreneur no, no, Leanne, you count on yourself. Months, Leanne, Leanne, when my full story comes out and you find out what i went through these last yeah. eight months with family and friends I, I fully understand. I fully understand that I'm alone. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because this story is so unbelievable that even my family, my closest family, could not believe. They're they're so enamored by celebrity that they think she's invincible, and that's why I took the approach that I was just going to attack, 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 and just let them, you know, their own words. And like, and that's basically what I've done. And I think it's really sad, but I don't give a fuck. So what would you do if Avril's team came to me and wanted you two on the show together? What I would do, well, I already said that I, I'm going to be Avril's redemption. I mean, after she goes through all this shit, hopefully goes to jail. That's what I'm pushing for. But after all of that shit is said and done, uh, we get back together and do a second record. <laughs> I've got the songs ready. Call Me a Kid, Deadly in Pink. Look up Samantha Moore, Deadly in Pink, Call Me a Kid. Now you listen to those songs and you think about 2004 and you put, you put Avril's voice on that. And you tell me that those aren't, those aren't like hits forever. And that's to, you know, I told you like Paul McCartney's drummer and Matthew Wilder who did Gwen Stefani. Now, do you think now basically it was termed let go meets tragic kingdom. And that's what we came up with. And I can't wait for this. I can't wait for my music to be heard. You guys, there it is. We got Cliff. He's coming back for the second show in three weeks. <laughs> this is show 84. Thank you for joining me. Cliff, and I can't wait to do more talking and interviewing in the next one. 